So for many of us, it's probably not our first instinct to come to church and to boo. I'm about to show you a picture and tell you a story that you may want to boo. That's okay. Uh, In the Lord, we can do these kinds of things. So if you do feel so inclined by the photo we're about to show you on screen, please do boo with gusto. Ready? Jesse, show it. That's just a shameful picture for Seattle sports fans, right? This, if you're not a sports fan, that's okay. I'm going to give us a little bit of context. This young man is Alex Rodriguez. He uh, played shortstop for the Mariners for seven years, and then uh, in kind of an unprecedented turn of events, he left the Mariners and signed what was at the time the largest free agent contract in the history of sports with the division rival Texas Rangers. Again, if you're not a sports fan, this is sort of the equivalent of uh, Julius Caesar, the knife in the back, a tu brute. Like, that's what was going on here. He uh, only played for the Rangers for a couple of seasons. Uh, then uh, the Rangers decided they had enough of him and traded him to the New York Yankees. My first ever Mariners game years ago was when uh, Alex Rodriguez came back to Seattle for the first time playing for the Yankees. And I'll never forget it. I'd never heard booing like that in my entire life, nor since. Like, the boos were just, like, it filled up Safeco Field. And then this was great. Somebody in the luxury boxes had a giant garbage sack full of fake money, and they dumped it out on the field when A-Rod came up to bat. Like, there was, like, fake money, like, fluttering all over the stadium. And you're like, oh, dang. I'm sure A-Rod didn't even notice. Four years later, he did get a World Series ring, which used to just kill me. He got suspended for doping. He was involved in the biogenesis scandal, if you remember that. He played less and less. His body kind of fell apart on him. And as pro athletes are more and more prone to do, he just retired in the middle of the season. He just went away. He reappeared a few years later, and I remember reading a magazine profile of him. At this time, uh, he kind of left sports, but had gotten into television, interestingly enough. And in this interview, without saying anything legally admissible in court, he basically admitted to cheating, to being a cheat, using steroids, all this kind of stuff. And then he had this line, as only A-Rod could say it, you got to own your stuff. You have to be culpable for the things that you've done in order to make the move to a new way of life. That's essentially what he said. Uh, He's now a commentator for ESPN. You can watch him tonight on Sunday Night Baseball and boo at him if you want. Uh, He did some commentary for the World Series last year, which I obviously watched a lot. And y'all may hate me for this, but I found myself listening to him doing his commentary and going, he's not bad. Like, there are some pretty terrible people they put up there to do sports commentary, and he's not bad. Like, he knows a thing or two. A-Rod is a good illustration of the tension that our text gets into today around the old self and the new self. This is one of the biggest themes in the writings of the Apostle Paul. It's such an important concept for us to discuss today. But if you think about it, Alex Rodriguez had this old self, especially with the Mariners. He was young, he was charismatic, he was a great player, maybe one of the best to ever play his position. Made tons of money, rich beyond rich, and he was either loved or hated by the sports fans who knew him. That was kind of his old self. He was arrogant. He had tons of swagger. His new self, and I'm basing this a little bit off the magazine article, but also just in kind of how I see him carrying himself as I watch him on television, I think he's a little more humble. I think he's kind of been chastised by his own body sort of breaking down on him. He's still working around the sport that he loves, but he's no longer the biggest celebrity on the planet. Like, he might walk down the street and not get recognized. And he seems to be okay with it. 
There's the new self and the old self. And the through line between the old self and the new self is the truth. Is some kind of truth that we need to realize about ourselves, some kind of truth we need to recognize about the world. And that's what Paul is pointing toward in our passage today. He's pointing toward the church, the community of God, being the place where people can wrestle with the truth and continually make that move from the old self to the new self. It's not a one-time thing, as we'll see in the text. We have to remind ourselves again and again, okay, that was my former way of life. This is my new way of life. It's not automatic. It's not like flipping a light switch. And as we've been studying the letter of the Ephesians over the last few weeks, we've learned that this is so common. This is, our identity is so much tied up in who we are and who we surround ourselves with. And Paul's premise is that the best place where we can do that is the church. The best place where we can step into the new life that God has for us in Christ is the church because, like we talked about last week, the church's purpose is so simple. It's to equip the saints for ministry and to help people grow in their faith. Those are the principles that Paul talked about in our text last week, and this plays into that so well with the new self and the old self. Now, there's a difficulty here, and I want to acknowledge this at the top before we get into the text. None of us like to admit that we had an old self. None of us truly like to admit how far we were from God, how broken we were by our relationships, by our circumstances. When we have people around us that we feel safe with, when we are in community, when we're connected, sure, we might let a few kernels drop that, yeah, there was a time in our life when we struggled or I didn't really know what I was doing in my job, all that kind of thing. Most of us, because we have experienced a very high degree of success in our fields, Eastsiders, there is no benefit to us admitting that we were once lost, that we were once the old self. We are so used to living into the new self and our successes that the old self just feels like it's not even a thing anymore. The greater our success has been in work or in school or in raising our kids, the less likely we are to confront how far we still are from where God would have us be, from where we would like to be. Because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. What I'm suggesting today is that there is a much bigger picture for all of us, whether we feel successful this morning or whether we feel like we've just been a failure in the last week. There is a place for each of us to step into this new life that God has for us. And so we're going to try to get at that through three different questions. These are outlined in your bulletin if you want to follow along. The questions are, how am I broken? Right? What's the source of this brokenness around this old life, new life, old self, new self? Who or what will fix my brokenness? And the final question, will it stick? Like, will these changes actually keep going in my life? And our thesis today is really simple. It's move toward the light. In each stage of the journey, move toward the light. So let's start by kind of setting the context a little bit, answering this first question, how am I broken? Let's talk about what's happening in the history of our passage today. We've talked about how Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. It probably went around to a bunch of different churches in that same part of the ancient Near East. Paul was a guy who traveled around the Roman Empire, planting churches, encouraging churches, arguing in the synagogues and public theaters. And his job was basically to say, look, in the marketplace of ideas in the Roman Empire, all the different faiths you could believe in, all the things you could be doing, Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, this is at the top. And it should be paid attention to, it should be listened to. Paul's stepping into some kind of unfamiliar territory, though, especially in today's passage. If you read the wider context, which I'd encourage you to do, Paul's pretty critical of a group of people in the church that he didn't relate to as well. And those are the Gentiles. Those are anybody, presumably most of us, who was not born into or raised in a Jewish community. 
If you uh, want kind of an illustration for this, um, if you've ever been to New York City and you walk through the different parts of the city, you walk through Chinatown, you walk through Little Italy, you walk through all these different indigenous ethnic neighborhoods, and if you're a white guy like me, you walk through a neighborhood and you go, this is really cool. I don't understand this. This looks interesting. That's different from the way I grew up. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Paul is walking through New York City as he sees the Gentiles, and he looks at their way of life. And this is not critical of them as Gentiles. This is critical of them as disciples, of people who claim to follow Jesus Christ. He looks at them and he goes, whoa, this is, this is beyond unfamiliar to me. This is inconsistent with the kind of life that you've been called to lead in Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, the stuff that I see you guys doing shouldn't be happening. He's not judging them on the basis of their being Gentiles. He's not saying this from a position of self-righteousness. He's looking at them and going, that doesn't match up with this. What you're doing over here doesn't match up with what you claim over here. We've all experienced this. What exactly is he calling them to? Look at verses 17 through 19 with me. This is Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just kind of give us a laundry list of ugliness. Paul tells the church that they're struggling because, in verse 17, there's a futility in their minds. Their minds are futile. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from God, ignorant, and filled with hardness of heart. Verse 18. Anybody called you ignorant lately? (laughs) That's kind of a scathing indictment in our sort of educated erudite culture, right? Verse 19, he gets really personal, and he says, essentially, your sexual ethics are a mess, He uses a word that my Bible translates as licentiousness. I don't think any of us use licentiousness in our dialogues this last week. Licentiousness referred to the hedonistic sexual practices and partner swapping of the day. These are hard words for any group of people to hear, hard words for the early church to hear, but at least he's consistent in his critique. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, he lists out almost these identical critiques of the church in Rome. So this is not like a one-time taking shots at the Gentiles. He is going to bring this up in other parts of his writings. And it's a consistent critique of the way of life that is inconsistent with Jesus Christ. Why is Paul hammering on the Gentiles' problems? Why does anybody who loves you say the truth to you? Because they want more for you than what you have right now. They're not beating you up. They're not looking to make you feel bad. We talked about this last week about speaking the truth in love. We're not just dropping truth bombs on people. This is seeking to help others flourish. That agape love that seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it's directed. Paul is telling the uh, Ephesians, specifically the Gentiles, these problems are hurting you and they're hurting the church. They're hurting you and they're hurting the church. In this letter to the the second letter to Corinthians, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. They're a new creation, but they're not acting like it. They have a new way of life. They have a new song to sing. They have a new calling, but they're not acting like it. They're getting drugged back down into the ways of the culture around them. They've said yes to Jesus Christ, but the waves are just dragging them under the water right now. Paul is telling them, you're not this, you're this. Remember this. And he loves them enough to tell them the truth and to try to help them get back on track. Has anyone ever done this for you? Has anyone ever kind of offered a hard word for you? Maybe in kind of a tough moment where you weren't really welcoming criticism, but they just kicked the door open and brought the criticism in anyways? Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to make that move? Is that the right kind of way to engage in that relationship? 
oftentimes that comes from folks who know us, who've invested in us and spoken into our lives a lot. There was one particular time for me where this happened from someone that I didn't know from Adam. After I finished college, I was unemployed for six months. I studied English, which is pre-unemployment. <coughs> didn't have a teaching degree, nothing. It was, it was terrible. Um, and I was thinking to myself, okay, like what industry could I possibly crack the door open and get into with an English degree? So I settled on advertising, and I tried to basically use my connections, use the people I knew in my church, try to find a way into the ad business. Total failure. But I met this one guy for coffee one time. And he worked in a company that a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend worked at. And he just took pity on me (laughs) and took me out for coffee. I emailed him and said, hey, are there any openings at your firm? I just just need to do anything, right? Like, I don't don't even know anything about advertising. Would you take me in? And he said, no, we don't have anything, but let me meet you for coffee. I want to tell you a few things. I'm like, okay, fine. So he meets me for coffee. And I don't know this guy. And he says to me, if you want to find a job, you need help. You need a lot of help because you are missing all the basics that you need to get your foot in the door. And what he was talking about was just the way I was communicating. Like I was writing emails like a 22-year-old college student, trying to talk to professionals using colloquialisms and all these other things that just don't work in email communication. I couldn't take a phone call properly. I didn't know how to really talk to people well in a business setting. And he brought up all this to me. And instead of kind of pounding me into the ground with shame, he was like, let me help you. I, I don't know you, but let me help you. Let me just give you a few tips, a few pointers. Here's how you talk to people. That guy didn't know me. But he had a profound impact on my life. I was trying to think about it this week. I can't even remember his name. Like the email somewhere in my, you know, 10-year-old email folder, right? Paul cares so much for the Ephesians that he is not afraid to sit with them like this guy did with me. Have a cup of coffee with them and say, this is what you're missing and it's hurting you. It's hurting your ability, in my case, to find a job. It's hurting the Ephesians' ability to be the kind of church that God wants them to be. This is out of love and care for the person you're sharing the truth with. That's different than dropping a truth bomb. That's different than writing something scathing online with someone you disagree with. That's different than most of the discourse we see in our world today. Listen to what Paul writes in verses 20 and 21 about this. He's just kind of leveled his laundry list of brokenness. You are greedy to every practice of every kind of impurity. That's what he said about the Gentiles. So they're going, whoa. And then he says this. In verse 20, think of this being spoken tenderly. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. Friends, if you remember nothing else as you go into the week ahead, remember the truth is always in Jesus. Truth is always found in Jesus Christ. Paul's word choices here, learning, teaching, that is not the way you learned Christ. It conjures up images of a classroom of someone lovingly teaching and shaping and molding another person. And hasn't this always been the case for each of us? Our best teachers aren't just the ones that teach us stuff. They teach us how to be. And they help reveal more of who we are. That's what Paul is doing in this first part. That's why he's highlighting their brokenness, what's so messed up about their way of life. He's calling them to higher ground. And our best teachers, my best teachers, have always done that for me. So who is calling you to higher ground? Who has permission to speak into your life, to teach you, to take you out for a cup of coffee like that random guy from the ad company did for me? Do you have those kind of relationships in your life? I recognize a lot of people are deeply connected to a lot of other people, but they're not 
really connected. They're not really getting under the surface. Who is helping you walk in the light? Who is helping you step into the truth that is in Jesus Christ? What might we be tolerating in our work, in our parenting, in our business that just isn't in line with what Jesus wants? And what might we have adopted from our wider culture that leads to destruction? Like what Paul is talking about here with this beloved church. So that's part one, how are we broken? Part two, who or what will fix my brokenness? How will we step into something better than licentiousness and hard-heartedness, all this other stuff? There is hope. Listen to verses 22 through 24 with me. Paul writes, You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Old self, new self. What does that mean for us? Every one of us has to recognize that there is always going to be a tension between our old way of life and our, current, our new way of life, our old self and our new self. It's not like you put your old self to bed and you never hear from old self again. It's going to keep kicking around. Like it's going to keep coming up from time to time, sometimes in surprising ways. And we have to give ourselves grace when that happens. We have to give ourselves grace too when someone offers us some insight into a new way of life and we just forget that insight really quickly. I had a friend this week um, share with me that his belief is that parenting is a, is a series, is a thousand one-minute conversations. Parenting is a thousand one-minute conversations. Not a, you know, a soliloquy for your children to hear from you so they can learn all of your wisdom, but just a thousand little touch points to help grow somebody up. Guess how quickly I forgot that. <laughs> like, I heard that at lunch, and I'd forgotten it by the time I walked in my door five hours later. Like, I just can't remember these things. There's too much in my brain. And that's the tug of war between the old way of life and the new way of life. We're going to forget stuff and we need to give ourselves grace so that we keep moving in the right direction. It takes a long time to increase the distance between your old way of life and your new way of life. So how do you get moving? Like how do you start stepping into that even if you know it's going to be a struggle? There are three phrases from the text I want to highlight for us really briefly. The first one is be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I'm going to talk us through verses 22 through 24. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's kind of step one. The word renewed here is really amazing. It is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. There are not that many words that at least I've studied in the New Testament only come up one time, and here it is. And you know what it means? It means to be renovated by inward reformation. Renovated by inward reformation. What's even cooler than that definition, I love that definition. We could play with that all day. This is a passive verb. This is a verb that is constructed to mean we can't do this for ourselves. You and I cannot do the renewal business inwardly by ourselves. We do not have that kind of power. A passive verb demands that the power comes from elsewhere into our lives. It takes power from outside me to make renewal happen in my life. This is really good news. This is super good news because it means all I can do if I want renewal in my work, in my marriage, in my children, in my parenting is to ask faithfully. That's all I can do and try to live into what God wants me to do. Ask faithfully for renewal, Bethany, with each day anticipating that God will bring more and more of this inward reformation to your life and it'll take time. Think of the most mature person you know in your industry, the most wise, godly parent you can think of, the kid that all your other kids look up to at school. Do you think they got there overnight? 
It takes step after step after step of asking faithfully for renewal. So that's one of your homework assignments this week. Ask faithfully for renewal in the places where it's just not happening right now. So the next phrase I want to highlight is clothe yourselves with a new self. You got to put on your work clothes. You got to put on your work clothes. Everybody in this room has a different industry. They have a different thing that they're stepping into each day. And you make a decision when you show up to work how you're going to dress. If you work in a hospital, you're probably going to wear scrubs. If you work in business, you might dress jeans and a button-down. I know plenty of people still wear suits to work. That's a big deal to see somebody wearing a suit in our day and age. You have to put on the new self. You have to put it on. You want to show up for work? Dress the part. The same thing applies to following Jesus Christ. If we want to look for renewal in our lives, dress the part. How do we do that? At the welcome table, there's a handout that we've been giving out all throughout this sermon series. I've talked about it every week, and I'm going to keep talking about it because it's so helpful. It's just at the top, who I am in Christ. And there are these short references to various Bible passages that remind us of who we are in Jesus. That he is our beloved, that he will never let us go, that we have power through the Holy Spirit. All these things that are so easy to forget are on that sheet. And I would just encourage you, I've been trying to do this as often as I can, pick up the sheet and just read through one line and just reflect on it. Just let it sink in, write about it, pray about it. Uh, One that I've been really struck with this past week in my own devotions, it's actually not on the sheet, I'm improving the sheet, you're welcome. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know why I've been thinking about that so much? Because that, this came from another book I was reading, A.W. Tozer. He pointed out that taste and see are two of our five senses, right? God gave us our senses to be able to interact with him with our senses. In other words, he made reality. He made my experience of reality so that I can know him through tasting and seeing and listening and all the other things that are there. Psalm 34, 8 has really hit home for me this week. And I want to encourage you to grab one of those handouts so you can keep having that reality pressed into you. What clothes are you putting on? Are you putting on the old self? Are you putting on the new self? Use that sheet as a resource to help you drive toward the new self. Okay, so those are the first two questions. Why am I broke, or how am I broken? What's the fix? The fix is knowing the scriptures, right? But then putting on that new self, reminding again and again, nope, I'm God's beloved. I am made in his image. I can never be taken from his hand. Whatever you face in the week ahead, nothing can trump what scripture tells you about you. And go back to the scriptures to remind yourself of who you are. Finally, we need to talk about will the fix stick? Will the thing that we're saying is going to help us, knowing who we are in Christ, will that actually stick? Will that actually come to fruition in our lives? And this is where we get to talk about light. And I like to talk about light. Uh, If you come visit my office, I have nine lamps in my office. And my office is like 10 by 15. (laughs) So I love, uh, like, uh, oh gosh, what is it? Anchorman. I love lamp. I do. I love lamp. I have a whole bunch of lamps in a very small space because I really don't like overhead lighting. And I like the warmth and uh, the directness of my lamps. So I have a lamp that I can put on my Bible when I'm studying. I have another one that I can turn on when I'm reading. And I love just being able to see clearly. I don't have very good vision. So having good lighting is really important for me. Direct lighting helps me with clarity and it helps me read and write and do my job well to be able to see what's in front of me. Each of us needs good light, good visibility to see the places where that old self, that old way of life, it's still kicking around. It ain't let us go yet. And where the new self is starting to break through. We need good lighting to be able to see that. And John's gospel puts it this way. The light, Jesus Christ, shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So we know who the light is. We know, we know we have a need for the light. And listen to how Paul applies this so beautifully to our lives. Listen to this. This is verses uh, 8 through 14. <clears throat> Actually, I'm just going to read um, 13 and 14 because these are the real powerful phrases. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's a profound statement. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that becomes visible is light. Where do we see this happening? What does this mean in real life? John 8 tells the story of a woman who was thrown into the light and wanted nothing to do with it. This is the woman that the Pharisees brought before Jesus to kind of make a show of, of, of his ministry, kind of put him under pressure. This woman had a messy track record. She was actually caught in the act of adultery, which is just as visceral as you could think. And they're brought, they bring her before Jesus and they say, ha, this is what we'll do. We'll trap him. He has to condemn her and then we'll show he's judgmental and nobody will want to follow him. We'll blow up his movement. By the way, this is what most people think religion is. Most people think religion is following the rules or being crushed by the rules. Jesus has a different way. He has a much different way that brings freedom through the light. He turns the situation on his head. He doesn't turn away from the woman's sins, but he refuses to condone her or condemn her. He extends forgiveness to the crowd, or forgiveness to her, and then he challenges the crowd. Remember, he says to them, hey, you're all ready to do this person in. The one, each, whoever of you doesn't have sin, throw the stone. Whoever doesn't have sin in this community, throw a stone at her. Jesus is not content to let these people sit there in their bloodthirst, in their old way of life, in their condemnation, and say, this person deserves to die. He doesn't want that. Because there's a new way of life that he desires, not just for himself, not just for the woman, but for that community. The light that they hoped would shed light on this woman and shame her and put her to death, instead broadens to the entire community, and instead of creating change through shame, it creates change through freedom. The community around her is challenged. Some scholars believe that after this moment, when everybody drops their rocks and they walk away, and the woman is there, and Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and, lit, go and sin no more. After that moment, some scholars believe she takes off and she becomes an evangelist to her people. She begins to tell the story of the man who rescued her life, who brought light into the darkness. And it wasn't comfortable, and it was filled with tension, and it must have been an awful situation to watch, but the light came through. Do you hear me? The light still came through. And that which was in darkness became light, and that which is light brings life. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. It's all laid out there when we walk with Jesus Christ, when we confess, when we have relationship with people where we can say, you know what, I blew it this week. I had a really rough week and I would love your prayers. If you have one person in your life that you can do that with, you're ahead of the game. And if you don't have that person yet, come talk to me. Because I'd love for us to be a church where those types of intentional friendships can just keep springing forth. Everything that becomes visible is light. That transformation happens. The thing that was going to be used to condemn that woman and pull her back down into the darkness instead becomes the impetus for her freedom. The thing that is burdening you this morning and weighing you down can become something else through Jesus Christ. I talked with an old friend uh, this past week um, who has just gone through a rough stretch. This friend of mine 
um, went through all kinds of training, kind of graduate school, took on a big, big job in the Midwest, goes and lands in this new place, no family, no nothing, starting out, single person, and the whole thing just blew up. Like, the place that this friend was going to go work for collapsed. It was just a terrible mess. This friend of mine was unemployed for a little while. And so afterwards, uh, my friend took a long, kind of hard look at their life, and they realized the biggest problem they were facing wasn't that they lost their job. It wasn't that they'd been through all this training, and then it felt like, what, what did I do all that for? It wasn't that they were isolated from their family. Is that they were treating their pain through drinking. And they'd been doing this for years. And I had no idea that this friend of mine struggled with alcoholism. I had no clue. They'd done a pretty good job of hiding it even from me. And so when I asked this friend of mine, like, why are you staying in the Midwest? Like, you need to get out of there. Like, you know, Midwest is lame, blah, blah, blah. You need to go be around your family. This friend of mine goes, no, I have a family here. And I started going to meetings. I started going to AA, and I should have done this years ago. I've had people telling me for years who knew my secret that I should do this, and I just haven't. So this friend of mine, who now has a new job, is in a new season in life, finding freedom and community, they have found a place where the light is becoming brighter and brighter. In this random place in the Midwest, everything visible is becoming light for this friend of mine. And it's come through pain. It's come through loss, losing a job, feeling alienated, isolated, but this friend of mine still goes to that meeting and sits in that circle and starts those AA conversations in the way they always do. Hi, I'm Travis, and I'm an addict, or whatever your name is. And my friend probably would be dead if they hadn't come to that place where they could have said, I need help. And the light is breaking forth in the darkness, and this friend is waking up to the light of Christ in their life in a powerful new way. Through community, there are a group of people around them who are with them and for them and cheering for them and saying, you can do this. And not all of us are going to have a story quite like that. But the question that we all need to wrestle with is, who's bringing that kind of light into your life? Who is speaking that truth to you? Like my friend needed to hear, you need help with this, this drinking, it's going to kill you. You don't need to keep doing this. You need help. Has someone been saying something like that to you? And that's your old way of life, and you're going, no, 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 I'm over that. But in your new life, you're going, oh, I'm really not. I really need some help. What does it look like to take off the old self and put on the new self? It takes scripture. It takes community. It takes being here in worship together. Um, This may sound pithy, but it takes coming to a picnic. Like, come to the picnic in a little while and just talk to people. Because that's a step into the light. We don't all get to kind of rush out into the light. We've got to get there. We've got to walk at the pace that best fits us to kind of come into the light in a way that makes sense. So come, be a part of a picnic. Talk about sports and the weather, but start stepping into that. Be a part of what God is doing here. Join a small group. Start serving. Become a part of one of our serving teams. We're going to be doing a book club later in July on a wonderful book by Dallas Willard called Knowing Christ Today. I'd invite all of you to be a part of it. It's one of my favorite books. It has helped shed light in my life in a powerful way on the importance of knowing Christ and what that does and how that brings light. My most important spiritual discipline around light and asking God to bring more light into my life is confession. And we don't do this a ton at Bethany. I kind of want us to be doing this more. But confession is simply a way for us to pray a prayer together, wherever you are, and to just say, look, there are things in my life I'm not happy with. There are things in my life that I wish I had the power to change and I don't. 
So we're going to have a prayer on screen together. If you want to say it with me, you can. I'll read it out loud for us. You can just be silent and listen. But I want us to pray this prayer because I want us to be able to take what is in the darkness and offer it up in the light to Christ. That's the power of confession. And I would encourage all of us to try to develop a discipline around confession. Whether you try to do it at the end of your day, you sort of review your day and you go, okay, God was faithful today, but I still had a few places where I really don't feel like I met up with what he wanted. I'm going to confess that. Lord, would you bring your healing? Lord, in your mercy, hear my prayer. That's all it takes. And those things that we would otherwise keep in the darkness can come into the light. And like Paul promises, they will become light. So friends, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. I'm going to invite the band to come join me back up here on stage. We'll pray this together and we'll be silent for just a little bit. If you want to confess, if you want to speak what's in your heart to God. And then in a few moments, uh, Bree will lead us into our next song. So let's take a moment and pray this prayer together. Let me get out of the way. And cluttered, yet empty of rest, you are always present and working in our lives, but we often go about our days without considering you. Our failure to slow down, to listen, and focus on you only harms us, leading us to painful paths that could have been avoided, yet we are stubborn and slow to change. Please, Lord, in your steadfast love, and covenant faithfulness, forgive our sin and incline our hearts toward you that we may notice you and live in your faithfulness of life all of our days. Father, we hold out these precious moments to you where we can sit in the truth of your word, that there's an old way of life and there's a new way of life. And we ask that as we've been able to speak these words together in a posture of confession, that you would hear us. That you would receive those dark corners of our hearts and our minds. And we're so grateful, God, that you took every bit of every little thing that we could even say or imagine in confession. And it went to the cross with you. And it is absolved and it is wiped away and we are free. We are so grateful. The psalmist writes that as far as the east is from the west, so far has our God removed our sins from us, taken them away, made us clean, made us whole people again. Thank you, God, that your tender love for us includes our broken places. And so we pray for your healing. We pray that the light would shine in greater and greater abundance and bring greater clarity to our lives so that they look more like Christ. Father, we thank you for this time as we unite our voices again now to sing our praises to you. Would you further and further move into each of our hearts your scriptures and the conviction that we need about how much you love us. We're grateful. As we rise, may we rise with one voice to praise you. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.